And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we work to make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, we're pleased to host journalist and author of Red Pill, Blue Pill, How to Counteract the Conspiracy Theorists That Are Killing Us, David Nyawart. We know that there are conspiracies, that real conspiracies that have happened. And you mentioned COINTELPRO, Iron Contra. I mean, a lot. Of, there's just been a bunch of them over the years. And those are the reason why people go, well, geez, why, would, why wouldn't there be a conspiracy now? And it's, of course, before I go into this, I should sort of mention that, you know, it's worth noting that none of these conspiracies have ever been uncovered by conspiracy theorists. Before we start, please take a moment to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform now. So we recorded this episode with David Nywert on his book, Red Pill, Blue Pill, before the events on Wednesday, the uh, siege on the Capitol by Trump supporters. And I think it's really important that we focus a little bit on a preface to this interview by saying, one, David Nywert's book is incredibly important. That's why we talked to him and that's why we're going to be recommending it. But two, it's because we need to take some of these things more seriously than obviously we've been taking them because we got to see basically a domestic terrorist attack from people who have been radicalized in digital spaces and have fallen down rabbit holes so deeply that they've taken the reality of the president's feed and it made it a marching order into our actual U.S. Capitol. And there's just some things that I think we need to think about in terms of long-term strategy of, of how to be citizens in this United States in a world of rabbit holes uh, going forward. So I, th- I think there's just a few things I wanted to get off my chest real quick previous to the, the, the interview. And I think the thing I want to focus on is there was a moment on Wednesday's siege that I think struck me a little more personally and effectively than I think I was really anticipating, and it was a bit heavier than I imagined. Kevin Roos screen grabbed this image of this Trump supporter, and his caption was, hard to overstate how online this mob is. Here's a guy outside the Capitol in a Pepe mask and a Kekistan flag. It's shocking to me to look at this image. It's a screen grab from one of the live streams, one of the dozens and dozens of live streams, and we're seeing more and more and among the camouflage and black and the tactical black and the drab colors and the, and the red hats, the ubiquitous red hats, there in the middle of it is this green image, this Pepe, this man wearing a Pepe mask with a MAGA hat and wearing wrapped around him a Kekistan flag. David Nywert goes into quite some depth on the Kekistan flag and its role as an ultimate dog whistle for the far right, because it plays this role of being this extra deep lowell factor this this faux irony or ironic stance on how trump supporters think they're not really doing anything wrong but they're also trying their best to offend but i think what's important to take into this is what happened what happens now that pepe entered the capitol and this this is the thing i want to focus on is that there's something important to recognize about this entire event. Yes, it was a siege. Yes, it was incredibly anti-democrat democracy. And most importantly, we got lucky. I mean, this could have been incredibly bad. This could have 
resulted in bombs going off. This could have led to hostages, if we saw the man with the zip ties. This could have led to any number of insurrectionist detail that would have caused major damage. And in the end, what we saw was basically people doing it for the gram. These these MAGA people did everything for the clout to return it to the message boards. The miasma of message boards had driven them into this rabbit hole in the first place. And the radicalization resulted in this ability to think they were getting trophies. And their trophies are photographs of them desecrating the, the space they're on that they feel has disenfranchised them. But this is the ultimate end of this Pepe story. When Pepe became into prominence and became a symbol of the far right back in 2015 and then eventually became a moniker for the Trumpian support, I don't think anyone, if you if you, if you you gave me a, a magic ball and said, look into the future, could you imagine somebody wearing a Pepe mask in the Capitol? I could not have predicted that. But there he was running into the building on live streams. And what he does, he represents the Pepes. And David goes further into this in his book, that the Pepes are really the name for the, the, the disenfranchised message board shit poster that doesn't really have too much of an identity, but identifies as groups. And the group of Pepes are the same type of person, the sullen, feels bad man frog, and one made into the capital. But we have to remember this is going to be very dangerous going forward because what they did is they sieged the ultimate grab. They took Pepe into the capital building. And that to me is more frightening than anything, because I don't think they're going to ever try something as big as that. But what could be bigger? What could be bigger than the Capitol? They literally took the largest symbol of the United States and they infiltrated it. In the next few years, now that they know that they've taken the biggest thing, I don't think that they're going to stop figuring out what else they could siege. I don't know if they'll infiltrate classrooms. I don't know if they'll infiltrate targets. I don't know if they'll infiltrate supermarkets or any place that they feel has wronged them. But now that they know they can, I don't see why they wouldn't do this. We have to be vigilant to see that the, this radicalization is something that is now concretized in the action that we witnessed on Wednesday. This book is a good tool. I think it's important to read it because it's heavy. We talk that we have a good conversation about it. But most importantly, the last few chapters deal with what we can do to think about how to manage this as we go to the future. And now I really don't think we have much of a choice. Can you explain what the red pill and blue pill represent? Well, you know, of course, it's all a metaphor drawn from The Matrix, the film The Matrix, mm-hmm. or the movie, where, you know, you have a red pill and a blue pill, and the blue pill puts you to sleep and makes you happy and, and concede to the artificial world that's been constructed by uh, the evil um <laughs> manipulators running society and the red pill is the one that awakens you unless you see reality they took that metaphor which actually was intended to you know by the authors by the people who created it they, they were transgender and it was supposed to be a kind mm-hmm. of metaphor about uh, being transgender um <laughs> and and basically twisted it into uh, it became the metaphor for being radicalized by conspiracy theories um, and seeing, you know, having your your eyes awakened to to the reality of the, the world that they've created, this alternative universe that they've created. Um, and that's what being red-pilled means, is that you've been radicalized by by conspiracy theories. 
and the thing about it is of course is that the the uh, <laughs> the the conspiracy theories are themselves a form of manipulation and control you know the the people who are spouting these things are actually trying to control the minds of their audiences right um as well and, and so it's it's a it becomes a hall of mirrors and it's really people difficult to get people to understand you know kind of see their way through that that uh, mm -hmm. that hall um but um yeah and of course there's a whole pharmacopoeia now of different kinds of pills uh you can get there, there's the uh, the green pill which is when you're radicalized about uh, eco eco-fascism there is the uh black pill which is when you just decide uh uh, the world is is fucked, and you're going to burn it down, uh, which is what happens when you sort of reach that uh, endpoint of conspiracy theories, where you have decided that uh, you know you're just going to act out violently on your own. Yeah, and in between, there are various kinds of pills supposedly you can take. I was originally trying to propose it as a kind of you know well let's just say the blue pill is actually the antidote to the red pill and, and a real blue pill doesn't put you to sleep it actually just awakens you in a different way you know to it makes you be hard-nosed about facts and reality and and logic and reason you know those which to me is the essence of the kind of antidote that we need to have which i think your book your, i mean the last as you mentioned in the, in the book like there is no the blue pill metaphor doesn't translate one-to-one -one like the red pill kind of does and that's uh, honestly that goes to the heart of what deprogramming and, and approaching conspiracy theorists and theories have is like it's no it's not a fix it's not like a one quick answer it's like a, a variety of methodologies right. to kind of engage right. with which and this is the reason why your book has become right. the most like re recommended from my point of view, as you mentioned multiple times, like I think we're each one degree away from somebody who has been exposed to or is vulnerable to or is wrapped into some sort of rabbit hole. So a lot of people do reach out to those who study or have an internet beat or are journalists or academics who study the internet because they're like, what do I do? And it, it isn't, I think sometimes people are looking for very much a well, here's what you do and tomorrow afternoon it'll be fixed. And very often I'm like, it takes me a semester. So that's about three months to do my work. So it is, it's, and, it, and that's by like students having to show up to class. So they kind of like are almost beholden to learn this type of stuff, but that's like a captive audience is far different than your family members who could just sort of disregard or walk away from it. Right. Right. And well, and what and the difference, of course, with family members is that you have uh, emotional and personal mm -hmm. familial ties with them. And right. those actually can't are the things that can make the difference in pulling people out of these holes. But it also, of course, adds a, a layer of difficulty to it because um, there may not be they, they may be accustomed to responding to you in a dismissive way. So. You know, there's there, there are all kinds of it, the whole enterprise is quite fraught. <laughs> yeah, certainly no, that's a say the least. And there's certainly no guarantee of success. So I have big criticisms about how these things get delivered to to people. And my I think your your book touches on this to in quite a depth about how the media itself, the media systems, 
a lot of times the media treats things like a both sides issue where yeah, where it's almost like they've normalized this type of behavior instead of like reflecting on it as horrible or horrific it might be. Do you think do you think it's a misunderstanding in general or is it just too complicated to deliver across the media systems that we've built? No, actually I I I, I got to tell you that having worked in newsrooms for 20 plus years um, and being in the journalism uh, business. Let's see. I, I finally left newsroom work in 2000 and I started in 1978. During all that time, you know, um, the during that particular period of time, the industry changed dramatically, um, particularly as it became uh, owned by corporations. And the whole of corporate uh, entities on the media environment has been incredibly toxic because um, what it's done is placed formerly independent journalists and reporters much more at the mercy of uh, corporate and business interests. And one of the things that began happening in the 1990s was uh, this fetish within newsrooms and within the journalism industry uh, to deal with the uh, claims of liberal media bias. And of course, this was promulgated by Rush Limbaugh and later by Fox News um, and that whole sort of right-wing Wurlitzer of right-wing propaganda. And partly because they are owned by corporations, the fear of of that accusation has it, it certainly uh, is, is reflective in our, our current situation where editors and producers will say will turn down you know puts will turn away reporting that is very clear and factual just because they're afraid of being accused of, of liberal media bias and 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 I think that this uh, particularly I mean it, it infects reportage on our politics, but it also reflects reportage on um, on our culture and the, you know, the spread of conspiracism because people who are reporters who write about these conspiracies being uh, completely basically out to lunch, which is what they are, uh, are told that they're being biased. Um, and, and, you know, so that they have to balance it out with, you know, both siderism and and i'm and i'm afraid that you know both siderism is just an incredible distortion of the reality um because both sides don't do it <laughs> no and it's not even just both sides don't do it. it's an existential threat on one side. it's it's almost like words versus violence you know it's like there's there's a very clear thing between like the the idea of both sides it seems like there's this effort to, to create an equation like a a both sides putting on a level where it just just for the storytelling aspect but i think that actually helps far right or conspiracists kind of deliver they it's kind of like a tool you could learn so they could learn how to do that and when when they get the idea of how to deliver their messages into media because they could hold, overhold the idea of like well if i'm not able to speak then that's bias that becomes a tool set of the far right and their goal as far as i could tell is with conspiracy and rabbit holes is to increase volume, you know, get, get as many people in as possible, because when you increase that volume, then it actually does become normalized. Cause it's almost like if you're not part of it, then that's something that's 
odder than being in it. And that's like, that to me is like something that the, I, I don't know, that's like retrospective. I know, I know that a lot of news agencies and media look back and be like, well, we should have probably done that. <laughs> but, but it was, it's like in the, in the moment, the news being reported. And that, that also comes to the next question, which is like the idea of news. It's when everything's, we talked to uh, Michael D'Antonio about this, which is like the, the tough part about reporting on some of these things, which is like, you can't not report on it because it is newsworthy, but it is also laden with dog whistles and types of tropes that uh, enable people to look further. And like the, the, you explained in some of your later chapters that the, the effort of Googling, the effort of learning more is the entryway to the conspiracy theory itself. So should media professionals, should there be new tactics in media education or tactics of newsrooms where they kind of have to filter out the dog whistles or at least approach the dog whistles as, can you hear that? Should they tell the public, can you hear the dog whistle coming out? Yeah. Well, this has to do, as you've said, with media literacy in, in the end, mm-hmm. the ability to you know, distinguish between uh, falsity and non-falsity uh, in what you're consuming for information. I, I mean, to me, it, it's it's like second nature because I was a news newsroom news editor for years, and my job was fact checking and and well, not just fact checking, but also deciding what was newsworthy each day, and and assigning reporters to stories that I that I felt were newsworthy and that's sort right. Of um, and yeah, a lot of that has uh, really fallen by the wayside in the modern age of social media and a lot of that does have to do with i mean there have also been some massive failures uh journalistic failures uh, by corporate media over the last 20 30 years uh and i'm particularly thinking of the iraq war Mm -hmm. that's the that's a big one yeah 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 you know and these things become just uh, not only fonts of conspiracism but also I mean, serious reasons for people to actually mistrust and distrust their sources of information. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people have a lot of reservations to this day about New York Times reportage uh, because they did such a horrible job with the Iraq War. And certainly people can point back to that as as the kind of thing of, well, you can't believe the media these days, right? Yes. Yeah. And that that gives them that, you bring this up multiple times during the book, which is that in some cases, you understand the disenfranchisement and the distrust because it did happen. Most conspiracies are founded in some sort of distrust that actually did occur. Right. Like COINTELPRO and the Iraq war and things that actually do happen in real life that cause a distrust because news consistently happens. There's no like pause button where we could just kind of like take a look back. It sort of continues to roll forward without this sort of like media literacy-esque type of retrospective, which is like reading the media. Let's let's read this as text. Instead, it's just like, well, got to keep moving forward. (laughs) Well, what it particularly does is it opens the door for... Uh, the conspiracy theory ecosystem to advance, to grow, right. um, because you, it's fresh audience for them, and that's that's really I, I think a, a serious concern because it, you know and it's one of the things that one of the reasons why one of the real failures was that after we made those mistakes, uh, there hasn't been any attempt to sort of correct it, to recognize what they did wrong. Uh, There instead has been a lot of ass covering. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> you know, and so and so that's not particularly healthy. And but as you know, I mean, the the thing about the conspiracy ecosystem is that it promises people. Uh, secret information that you can't get in the main media. It tells right. you, you can get the real truth here that you won't get in the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And then part, a lot of the appeal of that is personal. You know, that, oh, I have secret knowledge that other people don't have. I have secret power because knowledge is power. People understand that. Can you give the framework of how easy it is to debunk a conspiracy? Sure. Well, it's just, I mean, we know that there are conspiracies, the real conspiracies that have happened. And you mentioned COINTELPRO, IAC-CONTRA. I mean, a lot of, there's just been a bunch of them over the years. And those are the reason why people go, well, geez, why would why wouldn't there be a conspiracy now? And it's, of course, before I go into this, I should sort of mention that, you know, it's worth noting that none of these conspiracies have ever been uncovered by conspiracy theorists. They've always been uncovered by journalists, investigative journalists doing their work or whistleblowers within the government or uh, people, uh, serious investigators doing serious work. Yeah, there's not exactly like Jack 003 being like the yeah. uncover of like the, the the ultimate conspiracy. It, it does come from extreme work of discovering these things. That's right. And, and you know, people who, who do who ground their work in facts and substantiable facts. So there's really three, what we know about the difference between conspiracies, what we know about actual conspiracies over time that we look at over time through history uh, and compare them to conspiracy theories is that there are uh, essentially three major limitations on real conspiracies that do not exist in the world of conspiracies. So conspiracy theories. Um, the first limitation is on uh time, that is the length of time over which it takes place. Second uh, limitation is on uh, breadth or scope of the conspiracies, that is how many people they affect and how broad the intent of the um, the conspiracy is. And third, uh, numbers of actors. Uh, the more people who are involved, we and we just know this about conspiracy theories, is that the, the the more people who are involved in conspiracies, the greater the likelihood is that that conspiracy is going to be exposed. And once knowledge of it becomes public, uh, it's no longer an effective conspiracy, right? And so um, a real conspiracy just typically have, you know, maybe 10 or 12 people involved. Conspiracy theories will have, you know, thousands and thousands of actors. Uh, people just, yeah, you know, I mean, that, that we, we just heard this recently, you know, with with Sydney, uh, uh, what's her name, the, the, Sydney Powell, talking about how thousands and thousands of people were involved in this conspiracy to, to steal the election from Donald Trump. Um, it was just impossible, you know. They're, they're just- right, and it seems like that's that's the the seemingly illumination that should debunk immediately is when you look at something as widespread as QAnon, it's reliant on hundreds of people that, that are in coordination. And it's like, I, if you've ever been to just a meeting, (laughs) you would know that just getting five people into coordination is very difficult. It's, it seems to 
need like its own self debunking. But then your your book does a great job explaining. Sometimes it's not just about that; it's about the community right. that is created inside of that as well. Your your chapter six is is one of my favorites, where it's like a, almost like a POV, like a second mm-hmm. person of going down mm-hmm. the rabbit hole with like what that actually looks like. And I think a lot of people don't realize that it is a process. Yeah. I think a lot of people think that it's you just take a red pill and you're in the other side. It isn't. I've watched people become radicalized, unfortunately. It took four years or so. And at that point, it's pretty solidified. But I've also watched people fall into rabbit holes lightly and be able to work their way out. So it's, what do you think is the biggest misconception people have about these types of rabbit holes? Uh, What is the, the biggest missing part when people like come to me and they're just like, can you, can you talk to me about this? Like what, what to you is like the biggest one? Well, the de-radicalization process is also a process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it does, there's no magic switch that you can flip. Um, it's, it's sometimes takes years to pull people out. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, ideally you could get it accomplished in a matter of a few months, but uh, there's no guarantee of that. And it's, you know, it, it is a, even over those few months, it's still a process. And mm-hmm. so, so I think that, um, I mean, the, the biggest misconception I think that people have is that, you, the, and the one that's actually the most problematic when trying to pull people out of the rabbit holes is the idea that, that facts and logic and reason alone mm-hmm. will be enough, will be sufficient to pull people out right. of the rabbit holes. And unfortunately, that's just not the case because people adopt conspiracism not for really logical reasons in the end, but for very these very gut-level reasons. Conspiracy theories tell uh, very gut-level narratives that appeal to your sense of patriotism or your need for security or you know a lot of a lot of personal motives involved in why people adopt these things and ultimately those personal motives are also the key to getting them out once you can discover what those sort of underlying motives are which are often perfectly legitimate uh, uh, if you can sort of understand why people are adopting those conspiracy theories, then you can begin the process of pulling them out. But initially, when you're trying to pull somebody out of the rabbit holes, if you start hitting them with, well, there's, you know, the, the fact, say, a QAnon believer, and you start whacking them upside the head with the fact that not a single Q prediction has yet proven true or accurate. Um you know they're just going to turn you off. Uh, they're 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 going to. You're not going to have any success because they will see you as uh, part of the problem. You're either one of the co-conspirators or you're a hapless sheeple who is just a you know a sucker for the uh, nefarious conspiracy that they uh, they can truly see. And not only that, it, it it creates a sense of distrust and. But the key to pulling to de-radicalization really is empathy, is getting people to uh, relate to each other on a sort of empathetic level. So, um, so all of the experts that I talked to said that you know their first step is to listen, to spend time listening, be empathetic. But you have to, if you're going to do that, first thing you need before you even attempt that is 
is educate yourself, inoculate yourself with all of the facts and logic and reason that you're going to need later when you start talking this stuff over. But you need to have that in hand at the time they start or at the time you start trying to pull them out because it's you, but you have to hold it in reserve. It's just like, okay. And you, know, yeah, you can't unload it all at once because you're, it gives away the game pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a play. It's a way it, it turns this whole conversation, the whole process sideways when you do that. Yeah. So if you want the process to proceed, the first thing to do is, you know, establish a, an empathetic bond with the person uh, who you're trying to de-radicalize. And, you know, that involves, you know, re say reading books together or, you know, just going and getting a beer. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and going over to their house and having a barbecue, you know, just doing things that sort of establish that, that you know, you're, you're a person who has their best interests in mind, that you care about them. And um, it, in the end, uh, the more conversations you have, the, the more the process can begin to start using those facts and logic and reason to pull them out. But it's very gradual and it has to be done very gently. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you. And I agree with all that. I, I, the, I use the, my Caulfield method of inoculation. I, I, when I teach this stuff, it's covert. I make sure that uh -huh. it's kind of embedded and, and I, and it's, it does take the risk that you mentioned in the book, which is like, just by exposing them to it, it can also lead them to the rabbit hole, but at least they'll know where the rabbit holes are. So very right. often I was, I would do a lot of work to show them the doors or show them where things are out. And, and mo my, as Josh and I have worked on this for almost a year now, we do meme literacies and we use that meme literacies almost seems like, oh, haha, ha, memes. And what we're really teaching is how to read dog whistles. We're trying to read the meta text. What comes, what is being said without being said. And to me, that has been a, the best level of inoculation that has seemed to have worked on the small scale. And that's for people that aren't fully entrenched. These are for people who are dabbling. And so that, that tool set at the, the end there is like, great. So I have, I have one more question. And that's the, the big overall question of like, there, a lot of these people, I always say this, like when people talk to me, it's like, uh, a lot of these people are so close, but they're so far. They, they get overall what the big grievances are. They get overall what the big, issues are that cause them to feel disenfranchised or feel mm -hmm. grieved. But then they go, like, since there is no overall answer, because the overall answer is way too big, This is it would require a system overhaul. So without the idea of a system overhaul, and inside the pandemic, it was revealed of how disenfranchised people are, knowing that this is kind of like how we kind of exist, what, what options do people have that aren't that that give them the ability to feel enfranchised or or connected without feeling like the grifters which i i think it's a big the big deal is like the grifters people who have figured out that this is monetizable and so the the grifters require the the, the believers to consider continue their grift but right. they don't the followers don't need them so what is there a way for them to be so close but not fall to the grifters well i, I think one of the keys is, and we've talked about it a couple of times, um, is the issue of media literacy. And, and Mike Caulfield's uh, mm. work has been uh, really helpful to me in, in kind of getting a handle on this. Uh, because I, I do think that that um, 
if you can educate people on how to, as you say, uh, read the meta text uh, to to see beyond the sort of illusion that's actually being thrown up by the conspiracy theorists. Um, and, uh, you know, not just conspiracy theorists, but also um, a lot of it is uh, political beliefs as well. Mm-hmm. But if you can get them to understand, you know, the, the subtext of what they're being told, um, then I think people will have a lot better ability to um, decide for themselves whether or not to believe it. Uh, but right now mm-hmm. we have a system where uh, people think that just going on Google and entering an, an item is is we call they call that research. You know, <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. one of it's a, it's a useful tool for research, but it, it's not how you do research. Um, and, uh, so, you know, a lot of it has to do with some of the illusions that are being, that are created by, uh, the, the mass media system. And certainly it's problematic that, you know, the recommendation algorithms for all of these, uh, internet companies, you know, from Google to, uh, YouTube to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are all, predicated around you know engage they call it engagement but what it is is finding yeah it's finding ways to you know, get people to stay on their website and they do that by um oh you liked that you liked that video about conspiracy theories well here's another one you know and that's how people fall down these rabbit holes and that's how they go really mm-hmm. deeply down so there, I think one of the things certainly that we need to be teaching journalists is, you know, how to do media literacy, how to encourage media literacy in their readership. Uh, but I honestly think that in the end, I mean, we should be teaching this to kids in high school, too. Um, I think there need to be media literacy courses uh, so that you know, it's, it's because that's how disinformation spreads is, is through it's these true. algorithms and through this um, false, um, it really this illusion that you're that you're discovering the truth by going down these uh, following those algorithms. Mm-hmm. And the the idea that just to build off that, I know that a lot of we used to do a lot of PD and. Uh, professional development in high schools and they used to say oh we have google classroom but we're not allowed to use youtube in the classroom so i was like when do they use youtube they go oh they do that at home and i was like well hmm like (laughs) like there's so much like there's almost like this corporate social media in classrooms and then there's this independent use of it at home it's unguided and that unguided nature is what they if they had taught algorithmic literacies or at least feed literacies some of those internet literacies that coffee talks about it's like that to me is as valuable as the subject matter itself. And, and your book does do a lot of work on that, which is that the subject material can be equal to the need to know how the subjects even get to you in the first place. So your yeah. book does the service of filling in the context, which is what books do. I mean, that's the, the best part of books is it gives context. But it's the tool set that, that you've offered is like absolutely fantastic in terms of how to get the context and then how to use the tools of learning that 
in everyday life. So like, like I right. said, this, I don't, I can't right now foresee like a book that's more important to people I speak to in my circles than your book. Wow. So <laughs> it's been, Thanks. it's been really useful as a tool. And I, I, I think, and I want, the last bit here is, I think the thing I share mostly from your book is when you talk about the core element of this is when you were writing this and you identified dozens of case studies in here, you've, you seem to have identified one main thing and it seems to be there's grievance. Right. And so you're the, the blue pill anecdote is like compassion or empathy. Is that, is it hard to do? Like that's yeah. something that's. It's not easy <laughs> for me. <laughs> I, I, I've had a lifetime of going, of, of dismissing those folks. So, you know, just like, you're full of shit. Get out of here. Stuff. I mean, that's, that, that is, frankly, my reflexive yeah. response. And I've had to sort of retrain myself um, and try to think in different ways. I mean, it depends on, I mean, ultimately, I, I still respond that way to people who I just right. don't want to waste time with, <laughs> frankly, because that, that is who you're going to try to pull out of the rabbit holes That's as true. people you care about. And, uh, and you should, you, you know, I should warn people, you're not going to be able to do this That's on true. the internet. You're not going to be able to do it with, with somebody that you're, you're ch talking to in a chat room. Uh, it has to have, have be interpersonal and typically face to face. Um, you know, I mean, there's there obviously can be some internet discourse, but uh, it has to be somebody I actually know in real life. And um, so, yeah, um, it's at its your chances of success are not good. And uh, the only way it's really going to work is if, you know, you can de develop that empathetic bond. So if we're, you're talking about somebody you don't know and don't really care about, then, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you're wasting your time and, and you're you may be actually more counterproductive in the, in the process of trying right. to deal with them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, well, yes, I, 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 I'm wired that way. And, I, and it's been kind of, uh, uh, it's been a, a late life learning process to turn that particular response off. Well, we appreciate you being here and rewriting this book. And I will continue to be, I think I'll be continuing to buy this as gifts for anybody that asks me, to be honest with you, because I can't, no matter how much I could tell somebody what to do, only the real context is necessary. And I'm not going to rewrite your book since it already exists. So <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. And also thank you for posting the beauty of the days on Twitter, because it is a nice <laughs> respite from, from the, the, the doom feeds that, that happen to occupy yeah. everything. That, so it, well, yeah, I, I have so much uh, ugliness on my uh, feed that I put on my, you know, on my, timeline on twitter that uh i just felt i needed some something to you know a dollop of beauty each day to <laughs> help balance it out a little bit because because yeah i mean honestly when i'm dealing with hate crimes yeah. and domestic terrorists and stuff like that we're talking about some of the worst people in the world mm -hmm. so after a day of dealing with that it's nice to have something nice well that's <laughs> that's good advice too so thank you for illuminating on, uh, us on that too thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us we we really appreciate it this has been really an honor to talk to you and again thank you for writing this book and we look forward to your future work and we'll be keeping up with you so please uh, we'd love to have you back on any any time to just talk these things through too so thank you thank you jamie i really appreciate it 
Thank you again to David for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. Red Pill, Blue Pill, How to Counteract the Conspiracy Theories That Are Killing Us is available now at your favorite local bookseller. To learn more about Digital Void and to find show notes of today's episode and all previous episodes, you can visit us on the web at digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next week.